Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our August 2012 issue. Note, you will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Toxoplasma gondii, or T. gondii, is a widespread neurotropic parasite that infects approximately one-third of the world's population and has been previously associated with suicide attempts across diagnostic modalities. The investigators in this Swedish study tested a hypothesized relationship between biological markers for T. gondii infection and attempted suicide, as well as scores on the self-rated suicide assessment scale commonly used in Sweden to predict suicide deaths. 54 adult suicide attempters from an inpatient psychiatric unit and 30 healthy adults were recruited for this study. The majority of the infected individuals appeared to be in good health. Plasma samples were collected and tested for IgG antibodies to T. gondii and for other latent neurotropic pathogens, namely cytomegalovirus and herpes simplex virus type 1. Study results were consistent with previous reports on the association between T. gondii infection and non-fatal suicide attempt. A seven-fold increase in non-fatal suicide attempt was found in people who tested positive for T. gondii IgG antibodies. There was no relationship between self-directed violence and other neurotropic pathogens. Testing positive for T. gondii infection was also associated with higher suicide assessment scale scores, suggesting that being seropositive for T. gondii could possibly become a predictor of fatal suicide attempts. This theory would have to be tested in large prospective studies since suicide is a relatively rare event. The authors note that future research geared toward understanding the mechanisms of these associations may lead to risk modification through prevention. For example, through reduction of exposure to T. gondii among people at risk and may lead to new treatment targets, including pathogen control, immunological moderation, and downstream molecular mediation. Olanzapine, like many other second-generation antipsychotics, is associated with weight gain. The mechanism of the weight gain is unclear. Not all patients gain weight, so it is thought that genetic biomarkers may help determine which patients are most susceptible. Houston and colleagues looked at 205 Caucasian patients from four clinical trials who were given olanzapine for eight weeks. These patients had diagnoses other than schizophrenia, so they were mostly antipsychotic naive. The investigators found that three serotonin 2C receptor single nucleotide polymorphisms were associated with greater weight gain in women, but not in men. However, the A allele of the dopamine D2 receptor single nucleotide polymorphism RS 
2440390 was associated with greater weight gain in both men and women. A significant association that was previously reported between weight gain and 2-serotonin 2C receptor single nucleotide polymorphisms was not found in this study. The authors suggest that associations between weight gain and these genetic variants may be an opportunity for individualized medicine that would represent an improvement in the selection of medication for patients. These genetic variants may also present an opportunity for development of new medications based on differences in adverse events and genotype groups. This study was funded by Eli Lilly and Company. While antidepressants are commonly used worldwide, these drugs have potential negative effects on driving performance involving cognitive, perceptual, and psychomotor activities. Our continuing medical education offering for August reports on a study that estimated the risk of road crash associated with prescription of antidepressants. The researchers examined data on about 73,000 drivers from three French national databases. A case control analysis was done to compare drivers who were or were not responsible for a crash. Four percent of the drivers were exposed to antidepressants on the day of the crash. Exposure was higher among women among drivers aged 45 years and older, and among retired or unemployed drivers. The risk of being responsible for a crash was significantly increased in drivers exposed to antidepressants. This risk increased after initiation of antidepressants or after a change in antidepressant treatment. Patients and prescribers should be warned about the risk of road crashes during treatment with antidepressants and about periods of particularly high vulnerability, such as when treatment is initiated or changed. To receive CME credit, read the full article at psychiatrist.com and take the post-test. Placebo response in clinical trials of psychiatric conditions is increasing over time. The investigators in this study looked at factors associated with placebo response in adults with ADHD. They carried out a post-hoc analysis of two studies of osmotic-release oral system methylphenidate. The studies were entitled Long-Acting Methylphenidate in Adults with ADHD, or LAMDA. The trial duration of the first study, LAMDA-1, was five weeks, and the duration of the second study, LAMDA-2, was 13 weeks. The primary efficacy measure in both studies was the Connors Adult ADHD Rating Scale, or CARS. The investigators correlated changes in CARS scores with a range of factors that may affect response to treatment. The Lambda studies were funded by Janssen Silag. In the Lambda 1 study, the CARS mean score improved by 8 points, and in Lambda 2, the mean score improved by 10 points. At higher baseline, CARS score was associated with greater placebo response, suggesting regression to the mean. In Lambda 1, lower educational achievement was also significantly associated with greater placebo response. In Lambda 2, 
younger age and shorter time since ADHD diagnosis were associated with placebo response. Given the lack of a consistent pattern among predictors, differences in trial design may explain the difference in placebo response between the two studies. In conclusion, the study results show that greater baseline severity of ADHD symptoms, younger age, shorter time since diagnosis, and lower educational level may help to predict placebo response in adults with ADHD. Irreversible monoamine oxidase inhibitors have been available as antidepressants for over 50 years. However, the perioperative management of patients treated with these drugs is still under discussion. Interactions with anesthesia drugs have been reported that sometimes led to hypertensive crisis. To prevent this problem, MAOIs may be discontinued before surgery, but from the point of view of treating the patient's psychiatric illness, continuation is recommended. A large study group from the Netherlands investigated the occurrence of intraoperative hemodynamic events when MAOI use was continued during anesthesia. This retrospective observational study was conducted in eight hospitals from 2004 to 2010. The index group was made up of patients currently receiving tranylcypromine or meclobamide. The reference group was made up of matched non-MAOI users in a 1 to 3 ratio. The researchers identified 26 tranylcypromine users and 25 meclobamide users. Adverse hemodynamic events such as hypertension and hypotension, tachycardia and bradycardia did not occur more frequently in MAOI users versus non-users. The authors conclude that there is not much justification for discontinuing MAOIs before surgery and that doing so raises the risk of compromising psychiatric treatment. However, if there is doubt about continuing an MAOI drug in an individual patient, the authors recommend that the anesthesiologist consult with the psychiatrist and surgeon to balance the potential risk of anesthesia against the psychiatric complications of drug withdrawal. Many veterans returning from military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan have sustained a combat-related concussion. Concussions and mild traumatic brain injuries are sometimes accompanied by persistent post-concussive symptoms such as headaches, memory impairments, and irritability. To study the relationship between combat-related concussion and persistent post-concussive symptoms, PTSD, and physical and mental health-related quality of life, investigators surveyed 233 veterans living in Hawaii who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan regarding their symptoms and quality of life. The study was funded by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and supported by the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. 95% of veterans who screened positive for concussion reported persistent post-concussive symptoms, and 57% of these also screened positive for PTSD. Veterans who screened positive for concussion with persistent post-concussive symptoms reported poor physical and mental health-related quality of life. 
However, when the investigators adjusted their analyses for PTSD, concussion and persistent post-concussive symptoms were no longer associated with these outcomes. Thus, PTSD largely explained the association between concussions and persistent post-concussive symptoms and health-related quality of life. The authors conclude that clinicians who evaluate and treat veterans should screen not only for combat-related concussions, but also for PTSD. Treatments for PTSD that are focused on dysphoric arousal and emotional numbing symptoms may improve physical and mental health functioning for returning veterans. One of the greatest challenges in psychiatric and medical research is clinical heterogeneity. The authors of this study note that to address this complexity head-on, researchers must, whenever possible, refine the target phenotypes that they study and treat. A good example of a phenotype in need of refinement can be found in the common and challenging problem of depression-obesity comorbidity. While over 120 articles have been published on this topic to date, almost all have considered depression as a unitary diagnosis, ignoring the fundamental importance of neurovegetative depressive subtypes that have primary relevance to weight gain. This lack of attention is highly problematic given that one major subtype of MDD, atypical depression, is associated with increased appetite and overeating, while another subtype, classic melancholia, is associated with decreased appetite and weight loss in most cases. The main finding of this study, as hypothesized a priori, is that atypical depression is in fact associated with a much higher risk for obesity than is melancholia, which in fact has no increased risk for obesity relative to the population as a whole. These findings were not significantly influenced by gender, age, or whether depression was active in the past year. The authors conclude that the findings point to the need for a significant refinement of study hypotheses and phenotyping for work on depression-obesity comorbidity going forward, which should in turn improve treatment options over time. You may have heard in the news about an illicit and dangerous substance known as bath salts. These agents, also called plant food, derive their street name from their white crystal pellet appearance. Online marketing has led to an increase in the use of these kinds of novel, unregulated psychotropic compounds. This month we feature a timely case report in which authors from Yale University discussed the case of a woman who developed serotonin toxicity and acute psychosis after using synthetic cathinone or bath salts that she ordered online. The woman was brought to the emergency department by her friend after the friend found her agitated and acting bizarrely. At the hospital, the woman continued hallucinating, and she experienced tremors, shivering and sweating, and restlessness. Treatment with lorazepam and haloperidol had a calming effect, and by day two, her sleep and paranoia improved. 
She recounted having burned the bath salts on aluminum foil and then inhaling the fumes. The case report is placed in context by an insightful commentary from Dr. Joseph Rusimus of the National Institute of Mental Health. He points out that abuse of bath salts often presents as serotonin syndrome, an often forgotten diagnosis that falls through the cracks between different medical disciplines. Although psychiatrists are warned about serotonin syndrome, they may believe it is rare. They may unwittingly prescribe an antidepressant to a patient who is already experiencing serotonin toxicity. Acute care specialists see serotonin syndrome regularly in overdose scenarios, especially in psychiatric patients with substance abuse, but they often call the syndrome by other names. Dr. Rusimus writes that, unfortunately, fragmentation of care may prevent these two physician groups from having a dialogue that benefits their chemically vulnerable patients. The commentary focuses on assessment, symptom-focused care, and collaborative management of these patients. JCP readers will benefit from this update to the lexicon of drug abuse. Hepatitis C infection is a public health problem that affects 130 to 170 million people worldwide. It often causes chronic hepatitis, liver cirrhosis, and carcinoma. The current antiviral treatment, interferon alpha and ribavirin, causes side effects such as depressive symptoms and even major depressive episode. The incidence of depression during interferon treatment varies widely across studies, probably due to differences in methodology. To provide more data, a group from Spain performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of the risk factors and incidence of major depressive episode related to antiviral therapy. Twenty-six prospective studies reporting risk factors and incidence of major depressive episode during interferon alpha treatment were included. The authors found that one in four patients who started antiviral treatment developed an induced major depressive episode. The most important risk factors included a history of depression, a history of psychiatric disorder, female gender, high baseline levels of interleukin-6, and low educational level. They point out that clinicians should attempt a full evaluation of patients before starting antiviral treatment in order to identify those at risk for developing depression. Although depression is the strongest predictor of suicidal ideation, post-traumatic stress disorder is also associated with suicidal ideation. In fact, a controversial debate has centered on the question of whether suicidal ideation is specifically associated with PTSD or whether this association is fully or partially mediated by comorbid depressive disorder. The authors of this article, who received research support from the University of Leipzig, tested the association of traumatic experiences, PTSD, and depressive symptoms with suicidal ideation using a population-based German sample of over 1,600 individuals aged 60 to 85 years. 
This cohort was seen to be of special interest as it carries an increased traumatic burden as a long-term consequence of World War II. Study results showed that 7.3% of the sample reported suicidal ideation within the last two weeks. Suicidal ideation was related to number of traumatic experiences and to PTSD. But comorbid depressive symptoms fully mediated this association. Consequently, PTSD does not seem to be a specific risk factor for suicidal ideation because the association of suicidal ideation and PTSD is explained by comorbid depressive symptoms. The authors conclude that screening for depressive symptoms, as well as administering appropriate therapy, seems to be the best way to prevent suicidal ideation in elderly people with traumatic experiences and PTSD. When antipsychotic drugs block 65% to 80% of dopamine D2 receptors in the brain, Patients with schizophrenia respond to antipsychotic treatment in the acute phase. However, it remains unclear whether it is necessary to keep this level of drug-induced D2 receptor blockade during maintenance treatment. The data are especially scarce for long-acting antipsychotic formulations. In this study, 36 clinically stable patients with schizophrenia who were receiving long-acting injectable risperidone for at least three months and who were free of any psychiatric hospitalizations over the past six months were assessed for brain dopamine D2 receptor occupancy levels. Mean D2 receptor occupancy was just over 62%. More than half, or 53% of the patients taking long-acting injectable risperidone did not show an occupancy of 65% or greater. Thus, they maintained clinical stability in real-world clinical settings without achieving continuous blockade of dopamine D2 receptors at 65% or greater. These results suggest that keeping D2 receptor occupancy levels above 65% may not be necessary for maintenance treatment of schizophrenia. While these preliminary findings must be confirmed in well-designed longitudinal studies, they have important implications for optimizing dosing and dosing intervals of antipsychotics for the maintenance treatment of schizophrenia to maximize effectiveness while reducing risk of side effects. Sarah Melly and Durango conducted a literature review on the use of varenicline in patients with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. Varenicline is a nicotinic acetylcholine receptor partial agonist at receptor alpha 4 beta 2 and a full agonist at receptor alpha 7. It has Food and Drug Administration approval for the treatment of tobacco dependence. However, post-marketing reports have described adverse effects associated with varenicline use in patients both with and without psychiatric disorders, prompting the release of a black box warning for physicians administering varenicline. 
Since the prevalence of smoking is high among patients with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder, and because varenicline is an effective smoking cessation aid in the general population, the authors reviewed all studies to evaluate varenicline safety in this specific population. The authors analyzed 13 reports of varenicline use in patients with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, including 260 patients who received the medication for tobacco cessation or to investigate a different hypothesis. For example, the effect of varenicline on cognitive deficits in schizophrenia. Only 13 patients, or 5% of the sample, who received varenicline experienced the onset or worsening of a psychiatric symptom. Additionally, in studies looking at tobacco cessation as the endpoint, 83 of 155 patients, or 53.5%, reduced their daily cigarette use or stopped smoking entirely. This review suggests that under close monitoring, clinicians can administer varenicline for treatment of tobacco dependence in stable patients with chronic psychotic disorders. Although major depression negatively affects work functioning, current knowledge is still limited regarding interventions that promote a return to work after sick leave related to major depression. In a study from the Netherlands, Hees and colleagues aimed to examine which factors predict long-term return to work and compare these factors with those that predict long-term symptom remission. They followed 117 patients on sick leave clinically diagnosed with major depression for a period of 18 months. At baseline, various predictors were measured in the clinical, sociodemographic, personal, and work domains. After 18 months, the investigators measured whether patients had remitted and whether they had returned to work. Remission was defined as having a score of 7 or lower on the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. Return to work was defined as working the full number of contract hours for at least four weeks. The investigators found that whereas long-term remission from depression was predicted only by baseline symptom severity, long-term return to work was predicted by multiple factors. In addition to diagnostic factors such as comorbidity and depression severity, long-term return to work was predicted by work-related factors such as work motivation and by personal factors such as conscientiousness. The authors conclude that although more research is needed on this topic, their study suggests that clinical treatment in combination with interventions targeting work motivation and planning strategies may facilitate both long-term symptom remission and long-term return to work for sick leave patients with major depression. Heroin addiction is a chronic relapsing disorder that has devastating social, medical, and economic consequences. Naltrexone is an antagonist that blocks opioid effects and could be an effective medication for treatment of opioid dependence. However, its clinical utility has been limited partly because of poor adherence and acceptability. 
Research on naltrexone for opioid dependence tends to focus on treatment outcomes during and following treatment among successfully detoxified patients. Few studies have focused on predicting successful induction of naltrexone treatment through the detoxification period. The investigators in this study had an overarching goal of examining predictors involved in successful induction onto naltrexone treatment. The study received funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. The study was conducted with 64 opioid-dependent adults enrolled in a randomized clinical trial. Subjects were evaluated for the extent to which contingent access to paid training in a therapeutic workplace would promote use of naltrexone. Study results suggested a positive association between the propensity for risk-taking and the odds of naltrexone induction. This association remains statistically significant even after adjustment for potential confounding variables, including injection drug use and cocaine-positive urine results. Risk-taking propensity was predictive of induction onto naltrexone treatment, above and beyond injection drug use and cocaine-positive urine samples. These results suggest the potential value of targeting individuals with high levels of risk proneness to receive modified or specialized treatment modules, emphasizing effective decision-making skills, risk modulation, behavioral control, and treatment adherence, which may be especially important during early stages of treatment. Don't miss our Practical Psychopharmacology column for August, in which Dr. Andrade offers advice for physicians who need to prescribe modafinil or armodafinil for patients with schizophrenia whose antipsychotic medications will be affected by the addition of these drugs. Modafinil and armodafinil induce certain CYP enzymes and thereby reduce levels of antipsychotics metabolized by these enzymes. The interaction is likely to be clinically significant and can result even after many months in exacerbation of the patient's schizophrenia. Dr. Andrade offers valuable guidance for this particular treatment scenario. You will also want to read Dr. Marlene Freeman's addition to our Early Career Psychiatrist section, Psychiatry and the Gender Gap, Can Women Have It All? And finally, be sure to take a look at our book reviews and participate in the interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for this and much, much more from the August issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.